12 and verse 42. Uh, this looks like the last class of our lead up to the uh, what I call the Olivet Discourse proper where the, we actually get into it. This is all the surrounding information that comes together from the week preceding the cross. The uh, Olivet Discourse is a part of that where Jesus, the prophet like unto Moses, is going to give his most extensive prophetic discourse that we'll find uh, anywhere in the scripture. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's found in those three parallel passages, Mark 20, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. We're using a Luke passage as our chronological key uh, because actually the first five verses of the Gospel of Luke says it's designed to be laid out chronologically. So we'll take that as inspired and go from, from there. But we're going to... Uh, take a look at this. This is Jesus. He's speaking in the temple. He's, uh, the Greeks are wanting to talk to him. A voice has just come, come out of heaven. And uh, <clears throat> so the, the crowd just doesn't know what's up. That's kind of where we're going to pick it up right here. And the Lord's going to issue some statements that are just about as clear and precise and uh, that, that you're going to find anywhere about, about who he is and what he's there for. So, let's take a few minutes for prayer. We know what we're here for. We know we're here to open up His Word, to sing praises to Him, and to be edified by what, uh, what His Word says. And we'll pray that the Holy Spirit will teach us, illuminate us, help us understand it, remember it, and recall it whenever we need to. Let's be able to do this. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we thank you for all that you have done. You indeed are our Redeemer. We can sing to you. Father, we can shout to you. You have done amazing things. And Father, the fact that you would design a plan like you did that included the sacrifice of, of your own son, you becoming flesh and dwelling among us, and Father, taking our place on a cross, that is, that is amazing for us to even consider. So, Father, I pray that as we open up this portion of your word, you'll sanctify this manna to the nourishment of our souls. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start reading at John 12, 36. And uh, these things Jesus spoke, and he went away, and he hid himself from them. He knew it was time to leave that group there at the temple. Once again, the week of the cross. Verse 37, though he'd performed so many signs before them, uh, yet they were not believing in him. Now, when we put the miracles of Jesus together, there's about 35 of them. When you count them all up and add them all up, and there's some incredible miracles of raising the dead, feeding 5,000 with a with a bread basket or less full of loaves and fishes. He did some amazing signs. And he actually said in John 5, if, if, if you don't believe the word, believe because of the signs. In other words, your faith needs to be placed in the only one that can save you. And uh, it's, it's even a small bit of faith is what, what is needed. But he says they were not believing in him. Now this is the general comment. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet 
which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We went back and looked because it, it says in verse 39, For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He is blinded. Now the he here is Satan. This is not an exact quote from the Isaiah passage. But he is blinded as Satan is the one that blinds the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We have passages that give us that information and tells us who does it. It's not that God blinded the eyes. It's that the people of their own volition let Satan blind their eyes. And that was, that was the problem. And he hardened their heart. How did he harden their heart? Just like it says he hardened Pharaoh's heart. That seems to give people a whole lot of trouble. But God didn't make Pharaoh an unbeliever. Pharaoh made Pharaoh an unbeliever. That's the way it works. That's what volition is all about. Being made in the image of God. You have the ability to make decisions. That's part of what it's about. But what was God's role in it? God's omniscient. He cannot not know everything. So he knows that he knows how Pharaoh's going to respond. He knows how you're going to respond. I'm going to respond. And these people in the first advent, he knew exactly how they were going to respond. And what is written in Isaiah is prophetic of the reception of the Messiah. And they, they should have picked up on that. It's Isaiah 53. It's a passage that, that Jewish believers, uh, Jewish believers read it today, but Jews and their synagogues don't like Isaiah 53 because it does not fit their theological model that they've developed for Messiah. So many synagogues don't even read Isaiah 53 because it's about the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah, that he indeed would die as a sacrifice for sin and be buried in a rich man's tomb. There's too many prophecies fulfilled by Jesus and they just avoid it. That's one way that uh, liberal theology does things, isn't it? If you don't like it, ignore it and try to get away with it and then sell it hard that it shouldn't even be in there well he says so that they would not see with their eyes perceive with their heart and be converted and I healed them so the, the, the Lord knew it it was all laid out prophetically it didn't surprise him when they rejected him he knew what was coming in verse 41 is why Isaiah said these things and he says these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, the Lord's glory, Isaiah chapter 6, caught up into the third heaven, the angel singing, holy, holy, holy. And he spoke of him. Now that's, Isaiah, that's written down here in John. And he's saying that Isaiah knew about the Lord and he knew what was going to happen. Now verse 42 is where we left off. It says, nevertheless... Many even of the rulers. Rulers here is archon. And when you run into this word, it means basically a look at the chief rulers. These are people that were influential people in society. They were people maybe that had, had some um, money. They had uh, synagogue rulers, Pharisees, okay, like maybe Nicodemus. I would put Nicodemus probably in this group. And he says, and many even of the rulers believed. Aristens, point of time, active voice, 
They actively believed. They weren't caused to believe. They actively believed. And the indicative is a historical fact of the word pastuo. He says, many of the, even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. They wouldn't open their mouth and let other people know that they had accepted Yeshua as their Mashiach. They just wouldn't do it. For fear, look what fear does. For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Now, what we've been saying is there's a lot of parallels between that first century and this century. What are we seeing now in Christianity? We're seeing a lot of churches that don't even want to mention Christ because he's a stumbling block. And they're not to put a stumbling block in front of men. But if you study the scripture and study stumbling block, you find out that he is the stumbling block. If they trip over him, it's their fault. If you put non-essential junk in front of them that uh, is often done by legalists, they add things to the gospel, add things to the Christian life. They add them and say, well, if you don't do this, then this is going, this is going to happen. If you, don't, if you don't do those, then that's non-essential stumbling blocks. But there's a stumbling block that is essential. And that is the Lord Jesus himself and so they they shy away from even talking about him I get I've mentioned it before I get uh, an email I'm on the list of the Oklahoma City Council of Churches and I'm going to call them out they don't care what I think anyway I've written them a couple of notes they don't even respond to a couple of notes but what they've gotten into is nothing more than liberal theology. I doubt if they even believe really in God, a lot of them. Jesus may be a good man who was a carpenter's son a long time ago. Virgin birth, questionable whether they believe in that or not. Just from the things that they say. And their, their, their job, they've, they've basically walked away from the Lord Jesus Christ because they don't find anything about him in their publications. Those are representatives of Christianity. And when it comes time for the church day at the Oklahoma State Capitol building, guess who's there in full force? They are. And I honestly don't know how a church can stand in support of abortion. I just don't understand it. And yet that's part of what, what their system is. So they think you can fix all the ills uh, of mankind by fixing the ills of society and that's not going to work until the hearts of men are changed and women just to be equal until everything is changed nothing's going to really change politics won't do it laws won't do it legislation won't do it none of that is going to do it what do you see with these people cowardice is what you see you see a whole bunch of cowards in the first century. And in part because of their cowardice and their fear of saying anything, in part that's what contributed to Christ being put on a cross. I looked up just some quotes on cowardice. It, to know what's right and not do it. That's cowardice. Uh, the fear of God makes a hero, but the fear of man makes a coward. 
Cowards die a thousand deaths, but the brave only die once. Charles Dickens said, in a word, I was too cowardly to do what I knew to be right, as I had been too cowardly to avoid knowing what I knew to be wrong. He was at least honest with who he was. One quote is, hatred is the coward's revenge for being intimidated. We believe that preparation eradicates cowardice, which we define as the failure to act in the midst of fear. Cowardice, see, is knowing the right thing to do and not doing it, not standing up for it. The subtle and deadly change of heart that might occur in you would be involved with the realization that a civilization is not destroyed by wicked people. Interesting comment. It is not necessary that people be wicked, only that they be spineless. Hmm. That's quite a, quite a statement. Another one, the coward only threatens when he's safe. Those who lack the courage will always find a philosophy to justify it. These are pretty profound statements that have been made over the course of over the course of time. What's in part going on with our nation? While we were sleeping, look what happened. Look what happened. Communist philosophy infiltrated our schools. That's exactly what happened. Because after all, you couldn't even pray at a school gathering. You can't pray at a football game, have a public prayer. Separation of church and state. Mis misstatement of that whole principle from Jefferson. And yet, what did Christians do? We stood by like sleep, sheep being led to slaughter when we had a voice we could use. Part of the problem was we didn't use it. Now, what happened in the first century? The first century, first of all, in the summary here, the earlier passages concerning unbelief were general statements and did not apply to everyone because this passage gave us a qualifier. We have one that says they were not believing in him, right? But there were some who were believing in him. In this short verse, we find the underlying problem of the spiritual leaders at the first advent. The underlying problem of the so-called spiritual leaders, the rulers, at the first advent. It affected some of the common people, too, not just the rulers. John 9, 22. Uh, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So this has been going on for a while. It seemed like it's called the cancel culture. Doesn't it? If you believe in Jesus Christ right now, you are subject to being canceled. How do we know that? Because views that oppose the mainstream media or the books are even being taken down off, off of various booksellers because, oh, they might be controversial and divisive. No, they've been, the division is already there, folks. The only way for unity to occur, real unity that they preach, is around the truth. And the truth is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And if they depart from that, and we don't stand up for it, they're going to define their own truth. And that's what they've been doing. We have to stand up for what is the truth. 
This attitude is costly unless it's changed. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. It's kind of interesting. I had a conversation with some pastors this last week and, uh, uh, about Matthew 10, 32. If anyone who confess, everyone who confesses me before men, I'll confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I'll deny him before my Father who is in heaven. If a person denies the Lord the entirety of their life, he's not getting into heaven. That's what it's saying. Now, what about people, what about Christians who are already saved and, and trying to walk, the, walk the, the walk? Well, we look at Peter. Did Peter happen to deny Jesus? Uh, yeah, some of the three most <laughs> infamous denials in history recorded for posterity to all to look at and go I can't believe he did that instead and what did the Lord do he didn't tell him to get saved again did he mm -mm. he said straighten your life out go feed my sheep shepherd my lambs take care of them do what you're called to do that is there now it's a loss of rewards if we're spending time in denial of who Messiah is we're not gaining any eternal rewards. It's just not going to be. There's not going to be any crowns. Not going to be any gold, silver, precious stones. It's all going to be wood, hay, and stubble and all burned up there. The first step in change is a recognition of the problem. 1 John 1, 9, I think, is the passage. It says, if we confess our sins. Notice, these people weren't confessing him. Homologeo, to speak the same about. They weren't, they weren't acknowledging him. They were believing, but they weren't letting it come out of their mouth. And he says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, that's the first step in a realization. Realize we're wrong. Kind of like Charles Dickens, right? He realized he was a coward in both directions. That's the first step in making an adjustment. If we confess our sins, third class, maybe we will, maybe we won't. Maybe we won't take time to even look and see if we're involved in sin. He is faithful and righteous and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, some people have used this mechanically. They've used it as a formula to try and say, well, God, I confess my sins, so you can't, you can't discipline me. You shouldn't discipline because I confess, but they continue doing what they're doing. I, I, I know some of y'all have kids, and you teach them about the importance of confessing sins and being honest and truthful. And the first time they get caught doing something wrong, and you, you know, and they say, but I confessed it to God. Kind of like you need to leave me alone now because I've gone through the ritual. It's not about a ritual. Okay, it's about a realization that I have done things not pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. It needs to be changed. And if you're not paying attention to your life, you'll never do that. You'll never notice that you've judged someone wrongfully. You'll never notice that you've spoken out of turn. You never notice those things. So it says, pay attention to where you are spiritually with 1 John 1, 1 9. Next, it requires an ongoing faith in the gospel. And this is Romans 10. Verses 8 through 11, oftentimes people try to take this as referring to initial salvation, okay? But it's actually referring to the Christian walk. 
Let's read it with that, that in mind, because Paul in the book of Romans, important point, when he uses the word soteria, it's about the Christian life, salvation. When he talks about initial salvation from the penalty for sin, he uses the word justification. That's what he's used in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. Justified by grace through faith. And then in this chapter, later on, he says, what does it say? It says, the word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we are preaching. Talk about one been taken out of context. This is a phrase, word of faith. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, you'll be saved. Now, <clears throat> for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. That's the justification he talked about earlier in chapter 3 and 4. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You'll be tested from time to time whether or not you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Will you stand up for him? We have people, we have friends all over the world. You can pray for Myanmar right now. Because they've just experienced a communist takeover. That's exactly what it is. No matter how the media portrays it, if they even talk about it, it is a takeover by the Chinese communists. That's what has gone on. They've been buying their way into that country for the last 20 years. And it's a communist takeover. So <clears throat> what, are, what are Christians faced with now? Yeah, it could be deadly to confess who Messiah is as Jesus. Because communists don't like Jesus. Because Jesus is God and they want that role and they want that position and they will kill you for that power. That's the way they work. The scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Takes us right back to salvation from the penalty for sin. But now he's talking about the Christian life. Which Paul had been talking about since chapter 6. Which is this battle with sin that we've been going on, going on with in this. Now the change has, has a heavenly focus. From Hebrews 11.13 it says all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Here is the Hebrews 11, the list of great believers. Not an exhaustive list, but you're talking about Noah, talking about Abraham. And what did it say? All these died in faith without receiving the promises. They knew what was coming, but it wasn't there. But they had faith that God would bring them back to enjoy the promises. See, that's that's Abram. What was great about Abraham? <laughs> you know, you look at his life, he had some mistakes. He had some pretty big mistakes. Did he not? Say you're my sister so they won't kill me. That's a half-truth. Because she was his, his sister. Say you're my sister so, you, so they won't kill me. Uh-huh. But it was not against the law at that point in time. Important point. Where there's no law, sin's not imputed. Romans 4.15. So it was not against the law. So Abraham, what did he do? He was more afraid for his life. 
than he was for his wife. So was he a good husband at that point in time? Based on Ephesians 5.25? Not hardly. Not hardly at all. And he, I guess he learned his lesson in Genesis 12. No, he didn't. Genesis 20, he did the same thing. Same thing. Abraham was, was a myth, but they died without receiving the promises, but they saw them from afar and they welcomed them. They were people of faith. We don't see the eternal city right now, but do you firmly believe that's where you're going to spend eternity? So that's, the, that's Abrahamic, if you will, in your faith. That is like Job. That is like Isaac and Jacob and David. This, this life has a, it has a life that matches the words. From 1 Timothy 6, verses 12 to 15, the example here says, Fight the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy 6, 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses I charge you in the presence of God Paul talking to his understudy Timothy <clears throat> who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Paul tell Timothy? Let your life match your words. Now that's the way it should be with pastors. That's the way it should be with people. Our life should match our words. Because if, if it doesn't, we're hypocrites. Yeah, the strongest words the Lord had for people at the first advent was the hypocrites. The religious legalist. Verse 44 somehow didn't make the cut on this slide. But it says, and Jesus cried out. <coughs> and he said, he who believes in me doesn't really believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees the one who sent me. Is this really parables he's talking about? No, he's, he's laying it out. Again, week of the cross, this is happening. I, myself, have come as light into the world. So that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Look at what he's saying. He's making... He's, telling them about himself and he says and he's also making promises if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them I do not judge him and you can add right now because I did not come to judge the world but to save the world later he'll come back to judge the world he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me. The Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know 
that his commandment is eternal life. Isn't that pretty neat? He says, you better figure out who I am because I have a divine mission sent by the Father himself. His commandment, what's his commandment? You believe in the Son, you shall be saved. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Therefore the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Now the central issue of faith is Jesus. That's verse 44. The central issue of faith is Jesus. John 12, 44, Jesus cried out and he said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. So if you want to you see the father, Philip, he'll tell him that in John 14. Look at me. Have I been with you so long? You just don't know. You just haven't figured it out yet, Philip. Yeah, God in the flesh is Jesus Christ. The central issue of the faith is connection with the Father. Because what's it going to do? There's, he said, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what is faith about? It connects us to the Father, which is where we want to be. John 12, 45. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. It's, we're told that again, John 14, 6. We could go to Hebrews chapter 1, first two verses. Uh, he is the exact representation of his being. That's who Jesus is. The central result of the faith is connection with the Father. The central blessing of the faith is light to live by. Light to live by, John 12, 46. He says, I have come as light into the world. So that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Now you can choose to wander off the lighted path as a believer. You, that's, it's foolish to do it. But it's a, the word righteousness is interestingly enough, mean, the word righteous means straight. So you can call it walking the straight and narrow. That's where walking the straight and narrow came from. Because righteousness means straight. And along that straight righteous path is a light. But if you want to wander off out in the darkness, you're going to trip and fall. There's warnings all over scripture about that. We want light to live by, but the central blessing of the faith is we have light if we've accepted Christ as our Savior. Now we might be wandering off out around the dark, but it's interesting thing about light. I know you all have been out in the woods in the middle of the night at times before and you look for any you know you can see the smallest light from a long way off in the middle of darkness you can see it now what do you do if you find the light and you want to get out you go toward the light right that's the way to come out of the problems of this life see he's telling people who are not believing he's talking to cowards Okay? that they were not believing. He's back with his disciples now, and he's telling them, this is who I am. You know who's in this group right now? Judas. He doesn't leave the group till the Last Supper, a couple of nights hence. He's listening to all this. And I'm wondering, what is he really thinking? 
because he set out to betray the Lord. It's about the time that he made the deal with the priest when all this is going on. And Jesus is making it very clear so there's no misunderstandings just who he is. He is the light to live by. The central mission of the faith is to keep his word. John 12, 47. <clears throat> if anyone hears my saying and sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. It's not his role at that point in time to be the judge of all mankind. One day he will be. But it's not at the first advent. He came to seek and save that which was lost and to give his life a ransom for the many. That's the central mission of the faith. And he's telling us what it is. Keep what the Lord says. What's it the foremost? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. That's at the foremost. In the middle of whatever environment, culture, time frame you find yourself in. That is the central test. Keep his word. The central judgment of the faith is stated in his word. Which is 1248. It says, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. Now, what, what is his word? What's the judgment? Let's see. He who believes the Son has life. He who does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. It's been set up and established in the Gospel of John. Now we're in the 12th chapter. There have been three years go by between chapter 1 and chapter 12. And now chapter 12 through 21 all takes place within about a week. That's about a week plus the time before his ascension into heaven. It's stated in his word. He spoke the words. The words that he spoke were later written down by the disciples. They were carried out and told to other people. The central author of the faith is the Father himself. From verse 49, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Now here's the Lord... <laughs> Unselfish, he left heaven. Here he is humble. Listen to what daddy has to say. Now I'm sure everyone in here listened precisely and exactly to everything your parents had to say while growing up. Right. <laughs> the Lord did. He did. He listened exactly to what daddy had to say. And he lived it. And the central decree of the faith is eternal life. From John 12:50, I know that his commandment is eternal life. What's the commandment? What's the judgment? What is it? You believe in my son, you shall have life. Actually, you shall have it indeed. Not just salvation from the penalty for sin but now the power of sin has been broken and you can have a victory over that the central issue of the faith here's a verses 42 to 50 that teach us and 44 to 50 especially teach us seven very important principles about central issues of life and it's interesting because 
you know, we think of John 11 raising Lazarus. We think of John 13 in the upper room and Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And somehow John 12 gets left out of all this. And it's right there so beautifully placed because he's preparing his disciples again for what is getting ready to happen. Now we're getting ready. We're going to start with Luke 21, verses one, verse 6, actually, verse 5, 21, 5. But before we do that, I want to take a look at some principles of the interpretation of prophecy. Now, <clears throat> this may be rehash for some. It may be brand new for other people. But it's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics are the, is the science and art of biblical interpretation. There is more of a science to it. It's not a true science. But what it does, <coughs> true hermeneutics have looked at the scriptures and studied them enough and paid attention because the scripture will tell you how to interpret itself. That's what it does. It, it does it to the, the uh, disciples. A parable of the sower is a good one. Which says, now learn and listen. That's what he tells the disciples, a parable of the sower. Learn and listen, because by this you'll be able to interpret all the parables. So the hermeneutics of parables, Jesus teaches. He teaches us how to look at them, what to look at. He, he tells us, he teaches us. The, the, the Bible does the same thing. Should you interpret the Bible historically? Yeah, because it's grounded in history. It's rooted and grounded in real history. And as you look back in history, they, they, no devil is, uh, I guess, in the details. I got a deal the other day from Gene Whitehurst that said God is in the details. Huh? He works all things together to, for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Yeah, there's a lot of whole details that God's in, but the old devil takes and twists things around a lot and he will try to tell us well that chronology in the Bible that's just wrong and you know what you're going to find a lot of Christian people that write that the chronology in the Bible is wrong but they've succumbed to the ways of the world in so doing and it's much better always to take what the Bible has to say and let it speak for itself then we read out exegesis instead of reading in, which is eisegesis. When you start reading in, you start allegorizing the Bible. That's a problem. Prophecy has principles of interpretation. They're very similar to others. And first of all, interpret with a view to a literal fulfillment uh, of the prophecy. While recognizing figurative and symbolic language, uh, Kelvin this morning said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world quoting John 1 alright is Jesus a four footed woolly animal the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the Jesus was coming and his cousin John saw him he said behold the Lamb of God Lamb of God is a figure of speech is it not but literally he was the sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. So prophecy looks at literal fulfillment while using and recognizing figurative and symbolic language. 
Mark 13, 31. We're going to see that passage in context. It's not out of context for its stake in here. It says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's Jesus talking. When he says something, it's going to happen. And if you read it and you go, Oh, that's too crazy to happen. Like the whole world being given a mark or the attempt being made. That's, how's that ever going to happen? That'll never happen if you're in the first century. But the book says it's going to happen. <clears throat> and now the closer we get to it happening, the easier we see how easy that prophecy will be fulfilled. The words, world's being prepared for that right now. But it uses figurative language to teach literal truth. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said. This is a de declaration. My words will not pass away so if he said it and it's a prophecy it'll be fulfilled somehow somewhere he's going to fulfill it the second principle is determine the historical and prophetical setting now <clears throat> there's a hermeneutic floating around right now that that basically says well if the writer of scripture didn't understand what he was writing well then uh we have to understand it only the way the writer of scripture understood it only that way we have to move back as far as 3500 years into the life of Moses and understand exactly what he meant now there's historical school means that we put words we put people in their historical context that's what it means but also we have to pay attention to the fact that some things we're just not going to know until it's time for, for fulfillment. Exactly how they're going to be done. Daniel writes that in the 12th chapter of Daniel, the last things. And Daniel said, okay, tell me. He'd been asking the whole book, tell me what this means. Tell me what the, the angel goes, means this, means this, means this. He gets to chapter 12 and he says, tell me what this means. It's not for you to know. Many people will come and go. Knowledge will increase on this earth. But it's not for you to know. So different writers of scripture, especially those writing prophecy, may have been writing about things that they didn't fully understand back then and had no words to describe them. So for us to try and climb back into that prophetic statement is a, is a mistake, I believe, hermeneutically. We have to take literally what was inspired by the Holy Spirit. If you believe the whole book was inspired, then you by faith can accept the Holy Spirit knew what he's talking about. Because he's God and he sees the end from the beginning. So he decided to reveal this portion about Isaiah 7... 14, a young woman shall conceive and bring forth a child. Isaiah 9, 6, behold, a child will be born to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. He'll be called eternal father, mighty God. What? <coughs> the, the prophet may not have known what he was writing because it was not time yet for the fulfillment or for him to know. But it was written beforehand so that when these things come to pass, you might know. Jesus told his disciples that I am he. That's what prophets do. Determine the historical and the prophetical setting. Prophecy has been illustrated by a series of mountain peaks. You can look from one mountain peak to the next and you see everything in the valley. 
that's in there. It becomes clearer. Okay, but then you have to climb to the other mountaintop, i.e. arrive at that point in history, to be able to look into the next valley. You can know that the, the Jews are going to be sent out and dispersed. You know they're going to be regathered. You know the rapture is going to be returned. You know the second advent is going to happen to the millennial kingdom. But you might not have all the information going in. You have to get to that point in time to be able to see what's in the next valley. And that's uh, Larkin did that, and it was a pretty good illustration. People have stolen that for a long time. But determine <coughs> the historical and prophetical setting. Recognize the harmony of Scripture. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not the author of confusion. Nothing contradicts, I firmly believe that. If we don't understand it, we don't understand it. But God fully understands it. <clears throat> he said, seek me with all your heart and then you'll find me. If we don't seek him, we're not going to find answers to what we, what we want to find. And you know, I found this, this life is a life of seeking. Because we're finite creatures with a finite brain. We can learn a lot. But not until we stand in front of him will we know it all. Recognize the harmony of Scripture. There is no contradictions, true contradictions in the Scripture. <coughs> in fact, Solomon in Proverbs 1, when he writes, says, I'm going to teach you the sayings of a wise man, how to understand a rental, how to understand what seems to be a contradiction, how to understand an enigma, how to understand these various things. Because he'll have statements in Proverbs, I know you've read them, it makes a positive statement, and the very next line is a negative statement. That's exactly the opposite of the first statement, and they're both true. They're both. It's not that one's right and one's wrong. They're stated in a way they're both true. How? That's where he invites you to figure it out, because the fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom. If you don't want to figure it out, you'll never figure it out. But as you go through, you'll see that, yeah, this is true in one sense and not true in another sense. So both those statements are true. We have to, that's what we're invited. Recognize the harmony of prophecy. 2 Peter 1, verse 19, as we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the, mor mor and the morning star rises in your heart. Know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. No legitimate prophecy. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Revelation 19.10 says, I fell at his feet to worship him. This is John, the apostle, being awestruck by the role of an angel. And he says, the angel said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. That's instructions to John the Great. <laughs> For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's what prophecy is about. I see people send me stuff from time to time and they go 
hey, you need to listen to this guy. He's a modern-day prophet. And I go, I'm not sure I need to do that. Because prophecy ended with John. Church-age prophecy. How do I know that? Because the book says it. <laughs> Revelation 22. The last few verses says it three times. He's sealing it up. It's closing. We got the word now made more sure because prophecies have been fulfilled as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Realize that Jesus the Messiah is the central theme of prophecy. We saw that in Revelation 19.10, 1 Peter 1.10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them, Spirit of Messiah within them, was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Isn't that powerful? Coming from Peter the Apostle, the prophets who spoke of this grace to come. He's saying that there are people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, that didn't understand what they were writing. He didn't fully comprehend it. They knew that there was a time between the first advent when Messiah would suffer and die and the second advent when he'd conquer all of his enemies and make them a footstool for their feet. And they kept looking. See, they made careful search and inquiry. They knew there was a parenthesis in there. They didn't know anything about the parenthesis. But they knew there was a hole between the suffering servant and the conquering Messiah. They knew there was. But they didn't know why. How did they know that? They're comparing Scripture with Scripture. They're looking for the harmony of Scripture. They're saying something is missing and we don't know what it is. We're called to recognize dispensation. Revelation 2 and 3 is written to the seven churches. Revelation 4.1, the church disappears until the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. And it says, Behold, I, John, looked in a door standing open in heaven. And you look at the word for door, and you find it right here in the Olivet Discourse, okay, that says that there are two doors into the millennial kingdom. When you see these things coming to place, know that he is near even at the doors. And if your translation doesn't have a plural, it should have. Even at the doors. How, what's one door into the kingdom? The rapture. What's the next door in the kingdom? Second advent. Recognize dispensations. <clears throat> Determine if the said prophecy is fulfilled, unfulfilled, or conditional. If you're looking for prophecies, you want to find out is it fulfilled or not. If you're studying prophecies about Babylon and Jeremiah 50 and 51, what you're going to find is that's probably the best documented unfulfilled prophecy ever. Because the fall of Babylon, historical Babylon, did not happen the way it says it will. What's the Lord going to do? Bring things back together for a literal fulfillment of prophecy. It's another Babylon. We know it's another Babylon because the new Babylon is surrounded by water. It doesn't have water running through it like historical Babylon. The new Babylon is surrounded by water. Recognize the principle of double reference. From Luke 4, verse 16 to 21. I, I love this passage. 
Luke 4, 16, this is the Lord in the synagogue. He's just done battle with Satan, trying to tempt him. It says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. This is Jesus. And stood up to read. And the book of I, the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are downtrodden to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He knew who he was. He knew why he was there. But you know what the next line is? This is quoted in Luke, and everybody gets familiar with it. But the very next line <clears throat> is, And the day of vengeance of our God. First advent, fulfilled in your hearing. Next line, second advent. He comes back to uh, as the conquering Messiah. When you're studying prophecy, you have to recognize comparisons and differences, like the rapture and the second advent. When you're doing that, you have to pay careful attention to things. The rapture, we're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. Hopefully later today. <clears throat> Second advent, we're coming back with him from this catching up. And he's going to defeat all of his enemies. And establish a thousand year reign of peace on planet earth two different events very clearly different events but similar similar in Jesus coming back but yet different that's how we study prophecy <clears throat> is it easy? no is it designed to be easy? no how many verses deal with prophecy? it's estimated 10 of the 30,000 verses 10,000 of the 30,000 verses of scripture are prophetic so it takes a while to sort through it. But the bottom line is the prophecy of the book of Revelation, Jesus is coming back. Be ready for him. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your blessings, your tests, all your love, your grace. Thank you for just all that you have done for us. Father, we thank you for the prophetic word. It is a lamp shining in a dark place. We know this world has problems. We know our nation has problems. We know our state and city has problems. And Father, we know we have problems. But Father, I pray that, that indeed the Holy Spirit will convict us. And we'll be, <clears throat> we'll be ones who are not really the solution to the problems, but one who brings a solution to the problems. And that is the word of the Lord. Let us know it. Let us be uh, courageous in speaking it. Let us speak it with grace and accuracy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.